sense, we would like to undermine his authority in our lives. Uh, We really don't love having Jesus as our Lord sometimes. Sometimes we do, but at other times we'd really just kind of like to take him out of that role. And that's, that's sort of the natural state of people, is that when, when we hear someone who comes and speaks into our lives and we don't like what they have to say because it would require that we change, we either change or we try to take that person out of our lives. And, and sometimes, even as Christians, we want to do that with Jesus. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I heard Tim Keller say that he knows a pastor who often counsels college students who are coming up and they're saying, you know, I've kind of reached this place in my life where I don't believe in what Christianity says anymore. I was raised in the church. I heard all these stories. And now I, I have all these doubts and I'm walking away from it. And Keller said the first question that that guy would ask him is not, okay, why do you believe that? He didn't go right at the reasons they were bringing for their doubts. The first question he would ask is, really, um, who are you sleeping with? Which is kind of strange, but the truth is, that's usually how we operate. We, we reach this place where in our conscience, we're troubled. Uh, we, we know that we're doing something that's wrong. We know that we're living in the wrong way. And rather than actually deal with the claims of Jesus on our lives, we try to remove him from our lives. We try to have reasons to undermine him and say, this is the reason that I doubt. This is the reason that I don't believe. So we start with not wanting Jesus as Lord, and then we look for reasons that he shouldn't be Lord in our lives. And, and we can find them. We can Google for a long time and find all the arguments against Jesus. But ultimately, it's not usually about those arguments. It's been said that the two tenets of atheism are, number one, there is no God. And number two, I hate him. So, so, so we start with this, I don't like God, and then we look for the reasons to believe that he's not there. Um, I was youth pastor for eight years, and I'm, I'm still twitching, but uh, I used to meet all the time with teenagers who, who were reaching junior, senior year of high school, and were starting to say, you know, I think I'm walking away. I, I think I don't believe in this Jesus. And, and they would bring the reasons, and they were usually, you know, for a teenager, they, they thought they were pretty sophisticated reasons. They were good arguments. Um, but those arguments became fairly easy to debunk. Uh, usually the guy on the bus who convinced them not to believe in God wasn't Aristotle. Um, so, so, so you can attack those arguments, but more often than not, even after those arguments get torn down, they still say, yeah, but I still don't believe. Because there's a different reason. There's, there's this reason in our hearts. It's not that we really have good reasons for denying God. It's that we don't want him. We don't want him as Lord. We don't want him to make those claims over our lives. And so it's easier for us to remove him from our lives and not have to deal with those claims by discrediting him than it is for us to actually change our lives and repent. And that's where we pick up in Mark today. Jesus is in the temple. And remember, it's his last days before the crucifixion. And we're going to see over the next bunch of weeks, people come to Jesus from various groups. And all of those groups are trying to undermine Jesus's authority. They're all trying to trap him. Last week, we saw that some people came up and tried to trap him by exposing that he didn't have the authority to do the teaching that he was doing. Um, this, next week, we're going to see that the Sadducees come up and they try to trap him when it comes to marriage and the afterlife. Scribes come up and they try to trap him on the issue of God's law. Over and over, all these groups keep coming up and trying to trap Jesus. None of them trap Jesus. But when all the traps are there, Jesus teaches us some important things about government, about marriage, about the ultimate law of God over these next few weeks. So he's going to teach some huge and amazing things every time these people come and set a trap for him. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13, let's uh, pray and jump in here. Uh, Jesus, we, we want to embrace you 
in the midst of a world that doesn't embrace you. Uh, we we want to have your values in the midst of a world that doesn't have your values. Uh, we want to know you for who you are. We want to believe in who you are, and we want you to be our Lord. And so, Lord, all of that resistance that's in our hearts, that, that whole part of us that doesn't want to repent, that doesn't want to change, I pray that you would break it down. I pray that you would, would help us to yield to you because naturally we don't want you. We'd rather discredit you. We'd rather trap you. We'd rather push you out of our lives. And so, Lord, don't let that happen this morning. I pray that your spirit would work on our hearts so that we would accept you completely as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God, and we would worship you with abandon. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 12, verse 13, it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is pretty interesting. We don't just catch it when you breeze over it. But these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't get along at all. Uh, The Pharisees were the Jewish teachers. They were the leaders. And they hated the fact that there were Romans who were there who were occupying their country. Um, They they hated Caesar. They hated the, the law that had been imposed on them from the outside. But then the Herodians, they were Herod's party. Um, They were the people who loved King Herod, who got his power from Caesar. So these are two groups that are very diametrically opposed to one another. And so here you have people on two different sides of the political spectrum, but they're coming together with one common goal, which is to undermine and get rid of Jesus. So these guys, they sit down and they say, you know, we hate each other. We disagree on everything. But here it's time for a bipartisan effort. We're going to come together and we're going to trap Jesus. We're going to discredit him because he's threatening our authority. This would be like Barack Obama and Rush Limbaugh getting together and saying, you know, I think we can work together on this one. Um, (laughs) I feel like we we agree here. We can team up and we can actually come together on this one key issue, and that is we want to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus and his teachings, he's making some strange bedfellows here. And these two come up to him, and Jesus knows something up, knows something is up. I mean, Jesus is God, so he knows all things, but you don't have to be God to recognize that when Hillary Clinton and Ron Paul come skipping, holding hands together, that that something's going on. And so they come up to trap him. Verse 14, it says, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. So they come to trap Jesus and they start with some flattery. Jesus, we know that you teach the way of God. We know that you are a straight shooter uh, we are on your side. We, we know that you don't care what anybody thinks. Now, if they really thought this, they wouldn't be trying to flatter Jesus. They're saying these things precisely because they don't believe what they're saying. Um, they're, they're trying to get him to respond to them. They're thinking maybe Jesus will be impacted by the fact that we're these big leaders, we're these hot shots, and if we can flatter him, then man, he's going to want to say what we want to hear. He'll start talking, he'll relax, and then we'll be able to trap him. Verse 14, is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So here's the next trap for Jesus. And for us, this doesn't sound like much of a trap because our answer would be, yeah, I mean, of course you should pay your taxes, just, just pay what you owe. But this was not a cut and dry issue for them. The Pharisees didn't like paying taxes at all. And you say, okay, Join the club, Pharisees, who who likes paying taxes. Um, But for them, it wasn't just that their taxes were too high. Uh, Their taxes were high. These guys had to pay a 1% income tax. So you can imagine their outrage. Um, You can imagine that that, that they don't like paying that. But it wasn't just that they had to pay this tax. They had to pay this tax to Caesar. And that's where the problem was. 
Um, there was another tax that had been implemented. It was called the poll tax or the head tax. And this was a tax where every year they had to pay a denarius, which was a day's wages, to Caesar. And that money went not just to provide good government services, but it went to fund the occupiers. It went to their enemies. So the Pharisees especially did not love that they were paying taxes at all. In fact, not too long before this, when Jesus was a little kid, there was a guy named Judas the Galilean who came and led a rebellion against Rome because of this tax. This tax was implemented, and he said, no way, we're not paying it. Our only God is the God of the Bible. Caesar is not over us. And so he fought like crazy to try to overthrow him. And then Caesar came in, and they wiped out the followers of Judas the Galilean. So there was this big rebellion, but then Rome came in and squashed the rebellion, And so they still had pretty fresh for all of them the fact that not too long ago they had rebelled against this government because of this tax. So the Pharisees were paying it, but they were paying it very reluctantly. They they didn't like the tax at all. But then right there, there were the Herodians, and they were this group of Jews who thought you should pay the tax because they got a cut of it. So these two groups come together to trap Jesus. You got the Communist Party and the Tea Party united in the face of Jesus Christ. And their question to trap him is, should we pay these taxes to Caesar? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So Jesus says, well, bring me the coin. And then they they bring him the coin. It looked kind of like this. Um, This was was the coin they brought to Jesus. And it was basically the equivalent dollar-wise of our $100 bill today. It would be a day's wages for a poorer working man. And so they bring it up to Jesus. Jesus didn't have one, which is pretty interesting. Other people have to bring it to him. And when they bring it to him, verse 16, it says, they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. If you could go back to that slide for a second. On the head side of this coin, you got Caesar. And it says something like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Caesar Augustus, son of divine. So, so here you have Caesar, who is called the son of God on the front of the coin. And on the back, it says Pontiff Maxim, which means the high priest. So you can imagine that Jews wouldn't love this coin. Because on the one hand, you've got, it's claiming that Caesar is the son of God. And then on the back of it, it's claiming that he's the high priest. They hated this thing. They hated that the currency that they had to carry around claimed that this guy was God and claimed that he was the high priest. So the coin was blasphemous. They, they couldn't stand that they had it. They wouldn't allow you to put this coin in the offering. You had to actually trade it in for for Jewish currency when you put it in their offering boxes because they thought this coin would defile the temple. And that's why they had all these money changers so you could change it out and put in the right kind of money in the offering box. So so they hated the coin. They hated everything on it. They, They were very much against stamping a person's image on anything. They thought the commandment from God that you shouldn't make graven images would apply to something like this. And they looked at that and they said, they made a graven image. They call this guy God. They call him the high priest. We hate this coin. And the only thing they hated more than this coin was giving this coin away. Um, they, they, hated giving it, they hated giving it to Caesar. They hated that they had to pay that and fund the occupier. So here's how this is a trap. If Jesus says, guys, you should just pay the tax, then all the people out there will be upset with him because they have it in their mind that when the Jewish Messiah comes, he's going to be like Judas of Galilee. He's going to overthrow this government. He's going to say, we don't follow Caesar. We're not going to be under his rule. So for Jesus to say pay the tax would almost make it look like he was selling out. Like he had this really big talk about this kingdom of God that was coming, but then once he gets confronted by the leaders, he goes soft and says, oh, sure, go ahead, pay the tax. Now, if Jesus says don't pay the tax, he'll have a lot of fans. The the Jewish populace will love him, 
But these Herodians, Herod's party, they'll go tattle. And then the same thing could happen to Jesus' followers that happened to the followers of that Judas the Galilean. They could wipe out his followers. So Jesus is trapped here. Either way, he's going to say something that gets a lot of people mad at him, and he could say something that gets his followers killed. So then verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So Jesus is trapped, and here he speaks one sentence that absolutely changes the world. One sentence that changes the way that we look at government, that changes the way that we look at the world around us, that changes what we think our purpose in the world is for. Jesus is trapped, and he says something that blesses people and shapes all of Western thought for the rest of history. I mean, isn't this just like Jesus? He's a great savior, and every time they think they have him trapped, he blesses us. God is fighting for us always. And so, so here they come to trap Jesus, and instead of falling into their trap, he says some things that bless him. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. They come and they take Jesus. They've got him trapped. Now we've got him. He's nailed to that cross. He's going to die. We've got Jesus out of our lives. He's finally undermined. He finally doesn't have authority. And when they think they've got him trapped up there, he takes out Satan, sin, and death and dies for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. Always fighting for us. Always turning even those traps for our good. So Jesus says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And it says they marveled at him. And we don't really marvel at this because we're so used to it now. But here when Jesus speaks, he disconnects two things that had had not been disconnected before. In fact, just 10 years before this, they had started saying that you had to worship Caesar as God. He wasn't just the king, but he was the God of the empire. And it was pretty normal for kings to claim that they were God or at least claim that the gods had put them there. Um, you know, the, the best countries around were like North Korea, where you had kind of the crazy dictator who said that, that he had been put there by God. So you had to do everything he said because everything he said was the law of God. But here Jesus disconnects the state and God, and it's shocking, and they marvel at it. And this teaches us some important things about the way that we're supposed to live, especially live as citizens of countries on earth, but also citizens of heaven at the same time. So I'm going to give you a couple things on on how Christians should relate to our government, and then a couple things on how we should relate to God. So the first thing this says is that we can often be loyal to God and to country at the same time. Uh, We can be good citizens. We can have a good degree of loyalty to our our country, even when our country is very imperfect, and we don't have to feel like we're selling out most of the time if we do that. When Jesus says to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's here, the word for render is a word for pay what's owed. He's saying that you do owe Caesar something. He holds up the coin, and it's got Caesar's image stamped on it. He says, this is Caesar's. It's stamped out of his wealth. It's got his image on it. So give Caesar what you owe him. So he's saying that even Caesar's power, who was not a good emperor, was legitimate. The government that he set up was legitimate. And that even though his government did a lot of illegitimate things, and even though our governments do a lot of illegitimate things, they're still legitimate institutions that were put there by God. Now, I know a lot of Christians who who tend to be borderline anarchists, where, where they think that everything the government does is completely bad. The government has no legitimate authority at all. We would just do better if there wasn't government. But what Jesus says here, and this is to correct Christians like that, is that the government is legitimate. Not everything that it does is legitimate. It's not always good, but it is good to have government. 
And this is good for me, because I tend to be a little bit Ron Swanson, you know, where um, the government's just a bloated pig. Let's, let's privatize everything, get it out. We would do so much better if this thing wasn't here. But Jesus says, no, the government was put there by God. You should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We do owe Caesar something. So that means we should pay our taxes. It means we should be good citizens. It means that we should honor the people who are in government, even though they do dishonorable things. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So he says that we should honor this emperor, and at his time, they were actually killing Christians. This emperor that was destroying the temple, this emperor that was killing Christians, this emperor whose power ultimately ended up crucifying Jesus, Jesus said, you owe him something. Pay your taxes to him, give your honor to them, be a good citizen, and don't feel like loyalty to your country has to conflict all the time with loyalty to God. Even when the government's evil, even when they're not doing what they should, even when they're, they're doing all kinds of damage, killing Christians, he still says we need to honor that government because it's legitimate and God put it there. This is big because it also teaches us that we can be completely faithful to God even in non-ideal circumstances. I mean, you see this in Jesus. Jesus wasn't living in this perfect theocracy where God was ruling and everything was just and everything was right. He was living in a place where the ruler wasn't God and was claiming to be God. He was killing Christians. Uh, he had a heavy hand. It was a bad place to live, but Jesus was completely faithful there. And the call for all of us is to be completely faithful where we are. We don't need to have perfect circumstances. You know, the government doesn't need to be fixed for me to walk with Jesus. And if it's not the government we blame for our problems, we'll blame family, we'll blame work, we'll blame circumstances, and we'll say, if this one thing outside of me, if that just got fixed, then I'd be okay. If I could just have a better job, a better boss, a better family, a better neighborhood, a better school, then I'd be a better person. What the Bible teaches here is that you can be in the worst environments, and the gospel is powerful enough to change you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus, and to make you faithful to God even when the environment around you is bad. So we don't need to wait for everything outside of us to get fixed to be faithful to Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstances are, no matter how bad your marriage, no matter how bad your family, your government, your job, you can be faithful to Jesus where you are. The government, even when, when bad, has a legitimate role of controlling anarchy and, and making things not as bad as they could be. Romans 13, Paul says this, uh, Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now remember, the governing authorities that Paul's talking about here ended up cutting his head off. They killed him. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He's talking about the guys who cut his head off. Um, but, if, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. 
So we should honor and respect our government, and even though we don't like everything that it does, we're glad that it's there because it is better than anarchy, and it was put in place by God to carry a sword against evildoers and to use compulsion to keep things in the world from being as bad as they could be. So Jesus teaches that government's legitimate. It's got a legitimate role. You can be loyal to God and country most of the time at the same time. Secondly, he teaches that there should be some separation of church and state. The Bible actually lays out some very distinct roles here, not complete separation. There's definitely overlapping spheres, and I think uh, when the church is in a government like ours where we can influence the state, that's a good thing. It's good for Christians to have influence over a culture. But Jesus does separate who carries the sword and who carries the Bible. You know, as a church, the way that we spread the gospel of Jesus is not by passing laws. It's not by forcing people to do stuff. The way that we spread the gospel of Jesus is by teaching the word, praying for people, loving our neighbors, neighbors as ourselves, serving them, being good to them. Right next to us is the government, and the way that they do their ministry, which is not spreading the gospel but is keeping the peace, is by using things like fines and jail time and compulsion to make people be decent to one another. And the two exist side by side with some overlap but we've got to make sure we do keep some separation because what's happened throughout history, and this has been bad when we've done this, is Christians have thought that the church needs to carry the sword. We've thought that the church needs to come to power in government, and then we need to use the sword to punish sins. We need to, and we've done crazy things in our history, like burned heretics and burned witches and, and punished people physically for things that are sin but shouldn't necessarily be crime. Jesus makes sure those things are separated. This also teaches us that not all sins should be considered crimes. There are a lot of things that the Bible says are sin, but never makes criminal, even when God was setting up the laws for Old Testament Israel. Like, for example, God said, don't covet. Well, how would you ever enforce that as a law? Like, would you have a police officer standing at the mall? Um, you know, you're looking a little too longingly at um, those products in there. Um, I saw the way you were kind of salivating when you walked by the Apple store. Come here. Um, you have the right to remain silent. Like, that's not going to happen. Uh, you, you can't enforce. Now, it, it is a sin to covet, but it shouldn't be a crime. And we, we have this tendency when we see something that we don't like or something that God doesn't like that's a sin, we immediately start thinking, man, there should be a law against that. But the way, the way the Bible sets things up is there shouldn't be laws against all sins. There are plenty of things that we can look at and say, I don't like that but we don't need to make laws against it. Or even that's really bad, but we don't need to make laws against it. I mean, all the time, uh, when in staff meeting, we're talking about the way that I dress. Michael Barone always says there should be a law against that, but there shouldn't. Um, I, it, it, it may be a sin, but it's not a crime. Um, and and so, so Jesus separates the two by saying that there's God over here and Caesar over here. They have some overlapping spheres, but they're not exactly the same in everything that they do. Now, on a serious note, this could really affect us as a church sometimes. Um, you know, you hear stories sometimes of churches that discover a crime in the course of their ministry, and they say, we're going to handle this whole thing in-house, and then never disclose that to authorities that need to know about it. Um, you know, for example, I mean, it's all over the news all the time, churches that, that bury the abuse of children, and they say, we got this. We're going to handle this in-house. Uh, we've got all the resources we need from God to deal with sins like that. Now, we do have the resources to deal with the sin. When those sinners are discovered, they should confess their sin. They should trust in the gospel. They should believe in Jesus. And no sinner is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. But part of repentance is rendering to Caesar what's Caesar's, which means they need to go and also turn themselves in. 
and pay the punishment for their crime, and we would make sure that they do that as a church because the government does have ministry there. Part of what they do is keeping things safe in those areas. And so, so we've got these two spheres, and they're distinct, and they're overlapping. And so when Jesus says, give to Caesar what you owe him, the Herodians, Herod's party, are going, yeah, pay your taxes, because that's how we get paid. We love this guy. They're ready to have a party for Jesus. But he keeps going. Then he says, you know, there's another image stamped on something else around here. We've got this coin, and it's got Caesar's image stamped on it, so it's Caesar's. If it's got his image on it, it's his. Give it back to him. That's fine. He says, but you've got an image stamped on you. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. It says, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So when God creates man, he creates man in his image. Caesar can take his silver and stamp his image on it and sure, that's his, give it back to him. But God has stamped his image on all of us. And so everything about us belongs to God. So while it's true that we can usually be loyal to God and country at the same time, while it's true that government has legitimate purpose, it's also true that there are times when God and government can conflict. And because we have God's image stamped on us, we need to give ourselves, our whole selves, to God completely and have a higher loyalty to God than we do even to government. Again, 1 Peter 2.17, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Fear, that higher degree of respect, goes to God. Honor goes to the emperor. So we can give Caesar some of the stuff that he wants. We can give him our money. We can give him our loyalty. We can give him our honor. We can give him our respect. But the ultimate honor, our ultimate loyalty, always goes to God. Now, for us, usually we don't have to choose between whether we're honoring God or obeying our government. Usually we don't. But there are plenty of places throughout the world where Christians do. I mean, you go to China, for example, where there are are stories of government-forced abortions. And you hear those stories and hear people who are are faced with a choice. Do I honor God and obey him and, and allow my baby to live? Or do I honor this government and kill my baby? And in those situations, we need to choose to dishonor government and honor God. You know, also in parts of China, it's, dis, it's illegal for churches to gather and to meet together. But God commands us to gather and to meet together. And so you've got a movement of the underground church that still gathers and meets. They know that they're breaking the law, but they've got a higher law, a higher allegiance, higher loyalty, and that loyalty is to God, and that goes beyond the loyalty to the state. So we bend as far as we can to obey the state and give honor to the state, but nobody has our ultimate allegiance but God. I once met a missionary who smuggled Bibles into China. And, and so he was doing something that was very illegal. And he would go there and he would push around in rural areas a, a cart that had seeds in it. But underneath about an inch of those seeds, there were just piles of Bibles. And people started to know that he was there. And so they would come up and the code was, hey, could I have a loaf? And he's got a seed cart. And so if that's what they were asking for, he'd reach down under the seeds and hand them a Bible. Um, it was completely illegal. He got arrested a number of times. And every time he got arrested, he pretended he was crazy. Um, Like he kind of did what David did in the Old Testament, just acted like this crazy old man. And they're like, oh, just some crazy guy, let him go. And so then he went back out pushing his crazy little seed cart, handing out Bibles all over the place. 
And I would look at that and say, here's this guy doing something completely illegal that his government would say was evil, and it's very good because we have higher loyalty to God than we do to government. We bend as far as we can without sinning. We go as far as we can with, with, uh, to, to bless and serve our government, but we will only go so far for government. We can give government what, what we owe it, but we don't owe it everything. We owe God everything. He has our highest place of allegiance in our hearts. We are God's. We're his completely. We have his image stamped on us. Now, now again, usually government and God play fairly well together in our culture. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a football game where early on before the game starts, the players come out on the field and they're all just kind of dressed in sweats and plain clothes and they're out there stretching and they're mingling with one another. It's really informal. And if you're up in the, in the cheap seats, which is where I always am, like you, you don't know necessarily who's who. You can't see from there um, which player is which. You can't tell which guys are on your team. They're out mingling. It seems like they're all on the same team. They all have a good time. But then when game time comes and they get the uniforms on and they have to actually compete, that's where you see where the loyalties are. There may come times in our lives when our loyalties get split. Caesar goes one way and God goes the other way. And our call as Christians is to have an ultimate king in Jesus. Honor the king as much as we can, but that only goes so far. And there may be a time when that conflicts. And throughout the Bible, we see people who disobey their government in order to obey God. You see Daniel, who loves his country, Babylon. He serves them. He does well there. He rises in the ranks. He's known as a good citizen. But then instead of disobeying God, he chooses the den of lions. And that may happen to us sometimes. We've got to remember that God's image is stamped on us. And so we owe him ourselves. We owe him everything. And we can't give the government what isn't its. We, we can only give the government what's the government's. And we give God what is God's. So the Pharisees hear this and they think, yes, we love this guy because he says God's ultimate. He's over Caesar. He's actually just separated God and Caesar. He just said Caesar is not God. And so these two groups that are against each other, they come together. They try to trap Jesus. They don't know what to do with him now. Do they throw him a party or kill him? Um, because it seems like he's kind of saying what they like, but kind of not. He, he doesn't fall into their trap at all, but he speaks a word that changes the world. And he reminds us that our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate obedience always goes to God because we're made in his image so that we're his. We render ourselves completely back to him. And the, the gospel, the heart of the Christian message is the story of people who were made in the image, of likeness, in image and likeness of God, who sinned and fell and that image got tarnished, that image got broken, that image started looking bad. But then God who loved us came and pursued us, died for us, so that that image could be restored and we could again live forever in a perfect image and likeness of God. The whole story of the Bible is God making us in his image and then purchasing us so that we can be restored to his image. There's a story of a, a boy who was making a model boat and it was kind of an elaborate one. He was making it for his dad, for his dad's birthday. And so he spent a few months going down to the basement. It was hidden under a blanket. And he would build this boat, just little stick by little stick, gluing it together, making it precision, making it beautiful, putting a lot into it. And he did a really good job. He got to where this thing looked legitimate. It looked like something that you would display in your house. And so before he gives it to his dad, he says, you know, I got to test it out and see if this thing's seaworthy. So he goes out to the creek behind his house and he puts the boat in it. And the water was going a little bit faster than he anticipated that it would. And so the, the boat got swept down the creek. Um, the boat got taken down, got taken away. 
And because it got taken away, he lost it. Uh, he tried to chase it, but then there were some cliffs he ran into. He couldn't follow it all the way. And, and he saw that it just kind of drifted into this pond by a uh, nearby town. So he went into that town and he started going around the pond looking for it. He couldn't find it anywhere. And then he saw this store just by the shore. And in the store window was his boat. And it had a price tag on it for $100. And so the boy goes in and he says, hey, that's my boat. Um, I made it. And the guy says, no, it's, it's mine now. I found it. Um, you can buy it if you want. It's 100 bucks. Uh, you, you just let me know when you come up with that, and you can have it, but otherwise I'm going to sell it to somebody else. And so the boy goes home, and he sells his stuff. He, he tries to get together $100, and he finally does. He scrapes together 100 bucks, goes into the store, and he buys the boat. And he goes home saying, this boat is mine twice because I made it, and I bought it. You know, we are the property of Jesus twice. He made us in his image, and then he bought us with his blood to restore that image. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So God made us, he stamped his image on us, but we started being given to everything else. We started being given over to, to all kinds of sins, all kinds of other idols, all kinds of other gods. And so he came to buy us and restore us completely to himself. And if you look at how that happened, what did Jesus do? He rendered himself completely to God. He didn't hold anything back at all, and that's what paid our debt to God. I mean, if you wanted to get Caesar off your case, you would pay this denarius. You would pay this tax. He would come to you and say, this is what you owe. You got to pay it. And if you don't pay it, you go to jail. If you don't pay it, you could be sold into slavery. And so you would say, okay, fine. Um, I, I want you to go away. I don't want to deal with this. So I'll pay the tax. I'll deal with it. So that way you're gone. Well, what we owed to God was a lot greater than a day's wages. We owed him everything. We had the sin debt that we had piled up. And the Bible had given us the commands and we broke them. We'd rebelled against God. Every time he told us to do something, we ran in the other direction. We had given our loyalties everywhere else. And so our debt stacked up and stacked up and stacked up. And so Jesus, the man who's perfectly in God's image, the exact image of, of God, he comes and he gives himself completely to God. He dies on the cross, he's buried, and he rises again so that if we'll trust in him, every sin, every debt, everything we owe will be paid and paid absolutely completely. So that's good news. That that image we were made to bear can be restored in Jesus Christ. That we can again be image bearers of God, render ourselves completely to God, and go as far as we can for Caesar and government and for community. But our ultimate allegiance always goes to God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, a lot of times we, we get bitter against people who ask something of us. We get pretty upset at, at the demands that are made on our lives and on our hearts by, by people around us, uh, the, the energy that we have to put into our community, the, the money and the effort and the energy that we need to put into our government. We, we don't like those kind of things, but Jesus said, give them what they owe. Give them what you owe them. Pay honor to whom honor is due. Pay your taxes to whom taxes are due. Give of yourself. Be a generous person. Don't hold back. Don't try to be sneaky. Don't try to be shady. Be a blessing to the places where you are. So the question for us is, do we do that? Do we honor 
those who deserve honor? Or do we try to get away from them? More than all that, Jesus says that we have the image of God stamped on us. And so because we do, we owe God everything. We have to give God everything. He gets our complete loyalty, our complete obedience, our complete allegiance. Does he have it or is it split? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, you may may not know what that means, or maybe you're asking questions, trying to figure it out, or you've just been resistant to it up until now, the message of Christianity is not, you know, be a good citizen and then God will accept you. The message of Christianity is that none of us are good. We've all fallen short. None of us are, are right with God on our own. But the message of Christianity is that God came to us, Jesus Christ, the exact likeness of his person. He came and he lived that perfect life that none of us lived. He died on the cross, gave himself completely to God, and he paid the price that we owed. We owed God everything, but we couldn't give it to him. We already spread it out. We'd we'd given it all kinds of other places. We'd served other gods, worshipped other idols, uh, lived for other things as ultimate. But Jesus came and paid everything that we owed so that we could be rendered completely to God. And so his image in us could be restored. And so if you're here and you recognize your sinfulness, you recognize that you're apart from God, the good news is that God loves you and that he came and he died for you. He was buried and he rose again. And if you'll turn from sin and unbelief and you'll trust in him, he'll wash your sins away. He'll cleanse you. He'll make you right with him and he'll restore the image of God in you. So now I'd encourage you, if you recognize that you're apart from God, cry out to him. Say, God, I know how sinful I am. I know I deserve your judgment. But I'm turning from my sin and from my unbelief. And Jesus, I turn to you and you alone. I believe in your death, your burial, and your resurrection as, as the price that needed to be paid for me to be rendered again to God. And the good news is that if you'll trust in him, He'll wipe away the sin and give you everlasting life. He's a good God. He's a good Savior. And when they thought they had him trapped, he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Uh, Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for freeing us. We thank you for being a God who fights for us always. Uh, When we try to trap you, we try to dismiss you, we try to undermine your authority in our lives, you die for us. While we are faithful, you remain, while we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Jesus, you are an amazing Savior, an amazing God. Um, you outwit the smartest people, and you outgive the most generous. Lord Jesus, you, you gave us your life, and we worship you for that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.